I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of country throughout all sacred Aboriginal lands in Australia, where we are recording this podcast from today. I invite you to reflect on the land that you are on, the traditional custodians, their customs, their connection and their preservation of this land. I pay my respects to all elders, past, present and emerging. Sovereignty of this land was never ceded. And I extend this respect to all Indigenous people listening today from around the world. I am grateful for the connection to Mother Nature, the spiritual trees, animals and sacred waters. We as eco-impactors are aware that there is only one planet Earth and that everything on this Earth is interconnected. We stand up to protect Australia's natural ecosystem and all nature across this beautiful Earth. Welcome back to Eco Impactors, a podcast brought to you by Orangutan Alliance. My name is Blaine Edwards, and on this podcast, we talk with eco innovators, thought leaders, and change makers who are impacting our planet for the better. If this sounds like you, then feel free to subscribe, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, Eco Impactors. My name is Amy and I'm from the Orangutan Alliance and this podcast is hosted by myself and Blaine. And today we're joined by Fawiza Farhan, co-founder of Haka and a passionate forest conservationist working with local communities to protect, conserve and restore the, Le- the Lusa ecosystem in Sumatra, Indonesia. Fawiza, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. No worries. Um, maybe, maybe to start us off, um, can we please, as mentioned in the intro, you're the co-founder of Haka, can you maybe speak to the inspiration behind Haka, what Haka is, what kind of work that you do through that organization? Okay. Um, I think let us take um, this a little back in history. Haka was founded in 2012. At that time, me and many of my colleagues was working for a government agency uh, called uh, Loisar Ecosystem Management Authority. So the job of the government agency is to protect, conserve, and restore the Loisar ecosystem in Sumatra. It was mandated in the in the government in, in the law, but politically, this government agency doesn't have that much political backing. Um, so it was well hated by many of the other institutions that wanted to exploit the Loisar ecosystem and they used poli- the political circumstances to dismantle the government agency that we work for. Uh, so from one day to the next, we find ourselves without a house, without an institution and without a job, but with a passion to continue working to protect the Loisar ecosystem. When the government agency was dismantled, both myself and my colleague get together and ask ourselves, what are we going to do? Are we going to find a job elsewhere or are we going to continue what we have started? And everyone decided, let's continue what we have started. Maybe we transform ourselves into a nonprofit, into a foundation. Um, and then we were supposed to pick a name. Of course, we were unemployed. We sit in a coffee shop, as you do in Aceh, and scrambling drafts and ideas on tissue paper. Uh, and then we came up with the name Haka because we wanted the organization 
to be one that have courage and strength and have the bravery to do something that other organization does not have the guts to do. We wanted to sue the government for regulations, bad regulations that they created. We wanted to sue palm oil companies uh, that is burning for us. We want to be able to have enough legal standing um, and also enough guts within our team to do what we need to do to protect the Loiser ecosystem. Thank you for that. So as a woman, could you share with us what have been some of the barriers and what have been some of the positives about being a woman in conservation? And do you believe that there needs to be more women representation in leadership within conservation? Um, yeah, I think, you know, to look back, I don't quite have <clears throat> much uh, education around gender inequalities and I, I don't quite have that uh, perspective when I started in this journey. Um, I grew up in a family, in, a, in, in an egalitarian family with a feminist father and each of us are expected to achieve anything that we set ourselves to achieve, no matter if we are a boys, boy or girls. And, and that kind of mindset kind of carry over through my adulthood. Um, a lot of the, essentially the injustice or uh, mistreatment that I received in workplace or in my adulthood, I did not realize that I was facing all of that because I was a woman. Um, and I only begin to pay attention once I learn more, engage myself more, and educate myself more on these particular issues. So at the beginning, um, of course, you know, I see, I, I, I'm very confident and I see myself as someone who is highly educated and highly um, ambitious on achieving my goals, but other people often doesn't perceive me as such. Um, so I would often be mocked or uh, bullied uh, in a meeting, especially with the government. And the jokes that they throw at me often sexist. And at that time, I don't quite understand why I was receiving this, this kind of treatment or this kind of jokes. It took me quite some time to, to understand that the gap between how they treat a young male in the position of leadership and a young female in the position of leadership. Um, I think as a woman, we were forced to be a lot tougher. And sometimes we need to be a lot more strategic and a lot smarter than our male peers. Because even if we are um, very highly qualified, um, other things tend to be taken into account. Our looks, our clothes, for example, which would not matter so much um, if you are male. At the same time, throughout my conservation, journey, I have been fortunate and privileged to be working with a whole lot of other strong women uh, who are also feeling the position of leadership. And you know that saying that behind every successful man, there is strong woman. Um, and I find that behind every successful woman, there's a tribe of other supportive, encouraging, brave, uh, courageous women uh, holding them together and holding them back. 
um, the, the realities of working with many female conservationists uh, have created a strong support system for myself. And I continue to expand that to other uh, people within the team. But at the same time, one main difference that I see is the, our ability to collaborate, our ability to expand our alliances and our coalition and genuinely work together because we want to achieve the same thing, even if we come through different organizations. I think that's a spirit uh, that gets stronger as you have more women in the position of leadership in conservation organizations. Mm -hmm. As someone who I guess has been in this space for a, a while now, um, keeping on this um, idea, have you seen a change in whether it be attitude towards, you know, women in conservation and also a change in actual increase in numbers of women and leaders, uh, positions of leadership? Have you seen any changes from when you first started and, and now? Yes, I think, I think um, you see, even going back to our own organization, when we started, it's just one female in entire Hakka and the Lois Conservation Forum, another organization that we work very closely with. Um, over the years, we take a conscious approach to hire more women as part of the team. Initially, it was difficult to communicate the importance of having an inclusive team and, and a diverse uh, workplace. Um, initially, we do, everyone tend to have the tendency to find people who they agree with, who they find agreeable, who share the same value. But knowing that having a diverse and inclusive team, even if it's not easy, um, it will be very beneficial for, for our joint uh, work and our goals. So within our team, we make that conscious decision to hire more women uh, whenever we can um, to adjust the balance in the position of leadership to also have women um, in that position of leadership. So it's not just one person. Um, it's not just me fighting for everyone. But at the same time, to accept that things like um, there's this perception, for example, a woman would take maternity leave um, and it will be a loss to an organization if someone just starting and then they're going to take three months off uh, to care for another human being. Um, but at the same time, trusting that they bring so much value into the team, their perspective, their experience that that three months off is not a loss. That three months off is a way for us to see ourselves in the multifaceted role that we have in our life. We are conservationists. We are father. We are brother. We are son and daughters. We are all of that. So it's not just us and the work that we do that become part of our identity. And I think through the decade that I have been working in Loiser, I see the perception about um, women in the position of leadership, women in conservation slowly shifting, um, that we are not seen you know, as someone who is an outsider, who is 
someone who hated men or you know this this kind of uh, perspective as if feminist woman just out there to destroy the world of men um, or any of those mm. crazy ideas um, but yeah those those perspective are shifting albeit slowly mm. yeah yeah there's there seems to be like a, a global mindset mindset shift around these sorts of things um, when you obviously I'm not a parent I'm not a I'm not a woman but when you were talking about the maternity leave thing um, it seems like we're also approaching some of these things from like um, the wrong perspective and the wrong time scale so uh, you know if a mother go, goes home and, and is focused around looking after that that child and invests you know x amount of days or months or years or whatever it is that's and that is a positive thing for the economy um if you if the time scale is like a generation or multiple generations if you invest two years into focusing on on kind of looking after that child that's only got to produce positive things in the future um but i think a lot of the incentives at the moment whether it be in an organization a company a government they're all short-term goals uh, and you know they're not long-term thinking so i think when we think about these problems and set out these goals we need to approach approach it not just from short-term things there's obviously a lot of short-term problems that need like immediate fixes but then we also need to have long-term thinking as well and i think that's something that we struggle with um, from a society as a human species um one question so the problem of conservation is a complex one. It's it's massive. There's so many different components to it. Um, and because of that, there's a lot of challenges and there's a lot of fatigue around, I guess, working through these problems. Um, as someone who's involved in this, this is what you do for a living. How do you personally manage this from like a personal well-being point of view, dealing with you know the work that you need to do as a conservationist and running an organization like how do you how do you deal with that sort of process first of all um i, I agree with you also in the perspective of child rearing and childbearing for women and how she fit into the workplace in 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 such a you know long-term perspective um we're also working on engaging more women on the grassroots to be more involved um, in resource management, land use and deforestation issues. Uh, we had, we launched our first ever female ranger team, female led ranger team. And through doing that, uh, we encounter all sorts of challenges on the grassroots, uh, especially the challenge on how do we deal with men uh, that are not supportive of this of these initiatives. How do we deal with the perception of men in the village when the women are engaging in patrol and protecting forests and restoring forests, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So there has been um, a long learning journey for both us and our uh, female ranger team to be more inclusive in this in these uh, initiatives in in as many facets as uh, possible. And also to go back to your uh, question on <laughs> finding my personal well-being. You know, my sister once told me not so long ago, probably about last month, um, she said, uh, well, it's incredible that you haven't had a pay rise for 
five years, your salary is still where it was for as long as I know that you have been working on this organization. Um, it's incredible uh, that, you know, you're still working all the time, but at least now I see you resting. I see, I see you going to bed at 11. You no longer uh, stay, staying up writing petitions at 3 a.m. and just trying to get more signatures by contacting everyone in the world um, to sign your petitions or writing press releases. Uh, those are the kind of shifts that, that, you know, I... Haka, in a way, was the first organization that I led that I felt very responsible for. It's a little bit like it's my child. But then it's almost a decade old now. And it felt like this organization have to grow beyond me. And to, to allow this organization to grow beyond me, I also must learn to step back. Um, as someone who essentially felt like I have nothing else but my work, nothing else but my organization. Sometimes it's difficult not to always work on it. Uh, I, I learned in 2020, I experienced a severe burnout. Um, by not traveling anywhere, suddenly I felt like I could take on every conferences, every meetings, every request. Um, because I could be there taking it from home. As a consequence, I ended up working from morning to midnight, ridiculous, accommodating ridiculous hours. I learned to have boundaries and I learned to take weekends off. Um, and it's something that I initially forced upon myself and then realized I actually like this a lot. I like not opening my laptop on the weekend, uh, not doing any zoom any classes on the weekend actually just play with my plants and play with my uh, niece and nephew they are some of the most important uh, people in my life to spend time with them also at the end of 2019 to 2020 i did something i've never done before and something i never thought i would i took a 10 days off and i went into vipassana so that 10 days of meditation where you sit for 10 hours a day doing nothing. You're not allowed to write. You're not allowed to read. No phones, no conversation with anybody. You eat twice a day. It, it was probably the hardest, but the most rewarding experience for me that allowed me to see things more clearly, to see my work more clearly, to see my roles more clearly, to come into acceptance that there are a lot of things in the world that I can't change. There are also a lot of things that I could. Um, how do I see what is my responsibility towards the job, towards the, the, the landscape, towards Loiser, and also the responsibility that I have towards myself? How do I build and develop and train the team to be able to take up more responsibility? How do I support them to grow because at the end of the day I should not be thinking that I'll be doing this for the rest of my life what if I die tomorrow COVID really taught us that life could be short what if I die tomorrow and everything dies with me that doesn't make sense and I could not allow that to happen I have to pass this on everything I have to somehow make myself irrelevant mm. yes yeah, so is mm. that long-term thinking again as well plus like 
balance. Um, I hear the, this phrase often, or not super often, but occasionally when speaking to conservationists around, if you're a conservationist, you, you're kind of um, approaching it like you're a marathon runner uh, as opposed to like a sprinter. Um, and I think because the problems that we deal with in conservation are so highly emotive. We're talking about, you know, the extinction of so many different species at an ever increasing rate, We're talking about climate change, the highly emotive things. So when you enter this world, I think you, a lot of people enter it with a sprinting attitude. Um, but then the more that you do the work, the more you realize this, this has to be kind of like a, a marathon type mindset. Um, and that 10 days off that you had, um, those moments where you just uh, recalibrate your thinking and find clarity in, in, your, in, in, in how you view the world, who you are, what your goals are, how you're going to get there, that is kind of so important. But in a world that is so fast-paced, often there's a lot of friction to take 10 days off, so that's the challenge. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I think that's a very important issue you brought up and something um yeah conservationists need to be aware of and I think it makes you actually a better conservationist and a better leader as well to show that um you need to respect your own personal well-being um to do this work especially if um you are an empath um or anything like that in this space you feel so much and yeah I just really think it it makes you better in this space if you take that time for yourself, like you were saying. So I think that's really important, and especially as a woman as well. Um, yeah. With respect. Oh, sorry, you go. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I guess 10 days in a fast-paced world felt like a really long time. Um, when I, you know, when I just graduated university, uh, when I just finished my bachelor. I had a period of really um, depressed, really difficult period where I can't get a job that I like. I am financially super unstable. My grades in university are not that good. I can't get a scholarship. And things just felt impossible. And that was ongoing for months. And I had a friend who said that, look, um, this one, two years in your life might feel really difficult. But in the grand scheme of things, you might live for... 60, 70, 80 years, and in that 60, 70, 80 years, one, two years might not matter. So to think that way and to see, you know, you might be working for a decade, two decades, three decades, and in that time frame, 10 days doesn't matter, but it could matter so much. Mm, 100% agree with that. <laughs> and having those boundaries as well, which is the boundary of your own time. Um, with respect to wildlife and environmental conservation, uh, in your opinion, what do you believe is one of the root problems that needs to be addressed in this space? Um, in, I mean, sometimes when I think about wildlife conservation, the uh, movement around climate change, taking action on climate change and environmental protection, the issues around plastics, there's so much environmental issues that we are dealing with. And I think some of the biggest problem is we are outsourcing the responsibility 
to the others. Uh, we think of, we think of wildlife conservation. Oh, that's the job of conservationists. We think of dealing with issues of climate change. Oh, that's the job of climate activists. That's the job of the government. That's not my job. Um, in reality, we share this planet. We enjoy every ecosystem services that this planet is giving us. Why aren't more of us are taking action and taking the responsibility to, to own it? Everything that we do every day have an impact. Now it's just up to us what kind of impact we want to have. Yeah, the redefining, the fact that there's a title for a conservationist or environmentalist, I think can actually have a negative effect, like like you said, because uh, it can mean that people that don't have that formal title uh, don't feel like they can contribute to solving that problem. Um, so we, we almost need to redefine what a conservationist mean and like increase that to include everyone um, every human, I guess, because in a way, like you said, every action that we do has an effect in one way, shape or form. Um, so if every human defines themselves as a, a conservationist, then maybe they'll think twice about the, the decisions that they make, um, which I think is important. Like we buy things all the time and whenever we buy something, we we're essentially placing a vote on whether we want more of that thing. So in terms of the products that we buy, um, the whole supply and demand concept, we, whenever we buy something, we're effectively telling those companies to, to buy more of those things. Um, and we're probably buying too much as a general idea, uh, buying things that we don't necessarily need and want. And we just do it out of routine and through a lot of marketing and social media campaigns. So yeah, redefining what a conservationist is and, and, and making that include everyone, I think is a, a step in the right direction. Definitely. And I think our peers, our environment play such a big role in our uh, cons consumative, what is it? Consumerism decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we want approvals from our friends. So we want approvals from our inner circle. So if mm. we hang out with people who consume a lot, we tend to consume a lot because we want to be similar to our circle. Mm. So I think you know, finding that supportive circles um, that understand your decision. I make a pledge to myself and to my husband. I told him that if one day I got to a point that suddenly I want this $3,000 back, please remind me that it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever arrive at that point, please take me back to today where I make a pledge that mm. that if I begin to want that, I, I, there, there must be something that I need to realign with myself because I'd rather spend that money on putting someone through, you know, in Indonesia, $3,000 could uh, pay three semesters of university degree. I'd rather give that as, as a scholarship for someone that might change the future than get a designer back. <laughs> mm. I think it's so important having those people around you that align with your values. Definitely. Yeah. So finding that circle and the, like, I know technology, social media, all that can have a bad rap around it sometimes. And for good reason, um, even though I'm not a hater of technology, I'm actually a, a big fan. Um, but one positive of the internet is that we can find people that align with our values that aren't local. 
So, um, you know, for me, I don't have a lot of friends locally that are into wildlife conservation, that are into, you know, being a vegan or in, into um, blockchain. I'm also into blockchain. Those are like interesting interests that don't often intersect. And so it's hard to find those people locally, but I can find those people online. And so I can create my own circle online, which is cool because then that's like a support network where we can like um, bounce ideas off each other. Um, but speaking about the root problem, just to tie it back to the earlier topic around women in conservation, I think one, there are multiple root issues, I think. Um, but one root issue is when we're talking about leadership in the world, whether it's leaders of large companies, leaders of governments, we have 50% give or take male, female, um, and only a minute fraction of that that are leaders of those organizations and of those countries. And when we think about having balanced decision-making, it's, it's hard to make the argument that um, leaders that are say 95, I'm just checking a random number, um, leaders that are making the laws and the rules that influence everything that we do, having those decided by 95% say male, it's hard to argue that that's like a balanced decision-making process. So when you think about these rules and laws and the ripple on effect that they have across everything, if we bring it back to that level of most of them are the vast, vast majority of them are males. And that's got to lead to like inaccurate decision-making. I think that's also a root problem when you think about it at that level, like it's just not balanced as a, you know, the rule makers of the world. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also, you know, like taking an example, um, I, I visited when I first come into the group that become our woman-led ranger team, uh, I, I asked them about their experience and they told me that they uh, experienced um, natural disaster, floods and landslides that destroyed their village at some point. Uh, when that happened, they have to live in makeshift camp for a while. And during that period, access to uh, clean water and sanitation become particularly difficult, and especially for women in their period, um, the challenge become extra to keep themselves um, clean and sanitary. Those are the kind of challenges that the men did not understand. Um, no matter how much you explain it to them, they don't experience it themselves. So it was never, um, you know, when these, they design a solution that did not come to mind. So it's not that we say the, you know, the, the male leader are stupid or anything, but their experience that they bring to the table are just different. It is indeed through this, you know, global patriarchy, Somehow, a lot of women are created to think that the positions are limited. So when there is an, a woman in a position leadership, it's as if she gets there uh, by pushing the other woman away. And that mindset is something that we need to change. You know, it's not a competition between you know, one woman or the other because there's only one seat at the table on a very large table for a woman, but rather to expand and increase that number of seats um, 
for women to have their voice included in that decision making. So if you happen to be, you know, a woman in a position of leadership, invite another woman to join you, amplify the voice of another woman who is doing great work. Because I am sure that there are so many of us that never get the opportunity, let alone the appreciation. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, the next question I have is a kind of a big question, but I, I like it because I'm, I'm always intrigued with the answers. But um, why is it important to conserve biodiversity? It depends on which perspective uh, we're looking at. I am. I come from a place of a marine biologist, a place of an ecologist, to you know, to fall in love with wildlife, to fall in love with the diverse array of biodiversity is something that I kind of like a process that I went through throughout childhood and uh, upbringing and university and eventually to work. This is some a seed that has been planted since I was a little kid. But at the same time, when we speak to someone who have zero experience of falling in love with wildlife or do not see things like coral reef or mangroves or birds or forests as, as important to share with them uh, the, the relevance of importance of protecting biodiversity um, in their life. So sometimes I come up with a joke. Uh, I ask people, do, do you like almond? Uh, do you enjoy eating almond or drinking almond milk? If they do, then pull that into the services that bees are providing to make sure that we continue uh, to have almonds that we could consume. Same goes if they're Indonesians, asking them if they like durian um, and the importance of the role that bats are playing to make sure that we have um, you know, tasty durian that, that we could eat. This is maybe something that the two of you could not relate, but it's very important for a lot of Indonesians. Um, it, it's, it's sometimes a lot of us simply do not see the role that biodiversity are playing in our life. And even if um, the biodiversity that we have evolve in their own ways without really taking our well-being into consideration in their evolutions, but we enjoy the benefit um, of their niche, of their roles in the ecosystem. We, we enjoy what they do um, to nature. We bear the, uh, we harvest the fruits um, of their existence. Um, just today, I spoke to, to a friend who just get her Botox injection and telling the story of the botulinum uh, bacteria and how it produced toxins and how it uh, revolutionized the aesthetic um, beauty industries. And a lot of us did not see that correlation uh, to ourselves in such a way. So yeah, it's important to protect biodiversity for me just because I love it. But for people who are not familiar with it, tie it down to what biodiversity do for them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point understanding the roles of bees of trees of soil um because if you believe that humans have this kind of selfish gene which i think seems to make sense then it's probably important to um, tie why we should save this thing 
because of the value or the utility that that thing can have for you. So if you can convey mm-hmm. like the utility or the value that a bee has and that it provide if you love almond milk, well, you then need to help protect the bees because the bees provide you with the almond milk. Um, so yeah, communicating the, the roles of these different um, um, species and how that then ties in with the things that we enjoy, I think is probably important, not super romantic, but like important if we want to actually protect them. Mm, I think it depends on who we communicate with, right? Mm. Mm. I was going to ask, do you think there needs to be more education around that, that biodiversity and awareness and the interconnectedness between biodiversity and nature and ourselves? Um, I think yes, in in large ways. You see, um, we we learn the language of the universe. We learn mathematics um, at the first. That's that. Those are some of the first thing we learn when we get to school. Um, every kid have to understand at least a little bit of mathematics. Um, and as we grow, depending on you know which um, studies spark our interest. Uh, then the learning began to diverge into a much more specific studies. But I tend to think that environmental education, uh, the law of nature, um, ecological systems um, and ecosystems should be the basic knowledge of anyone and everyone. They should be part of our initial curriculum because that's one thing that we can't change. You know, the law of human could be changed. Uh, The law of economics could be tweaked. But the law of nature, you can't. Uh, if you emit too much carbon into the atmosphere, the climate is changing. The, the world is warming. And no matter how much people debate about it, it's happening. It's not up to our political systems. It's not up to our nature. Just like um, in landscape, like the Loisette ecosystem, elephants continue to roam regardless of the land status. Um, if people would say, oh, I grow my banana uh, plantations outside the national park. There should not be any elephants here. Then the design of the national park should change because clearly the elephants are roaming into your banana plantation and eating all of your bananas. That's just the law of nature. Um, Just like turtles would roam across different seas without having need to register for a passport. Um, These things... I think should be embedded in the thinking of everyone who has ever gone through formal education. And, and even if in some families, uh, this knowledge are passed on outside the formal education, but unless our curriculum acknowledge the importance of understanding the law of nature, we tend to think we could tweak it. We tend to think we could fight it. We tend to think of, uh, we can, we can conquer pit swamps by building canals. We can uh, conquer floods by building more dams. In, in reality, those are not quite true. That's only partially true. Hmm. I think that's a great point there and that nature can exist without us and we are just visitors here in nature 
And the solution there is to just connect more to nature and learn more about it instead of trying to modify it to benefit ourselves and the economy as well. Uh, I'd like to tie this conversation back into the beginning where we were talking about women in conservation and you said that in every woman it takes a tribe and that there is a tribe behind every great woman. Um, and with that, you were also speaking about having more representation um, in conservation, in women leadership. So with that, do you have any advice for women starting up in conservation and whether they're nervous to come into the space and that there isn't enough seats in the table, how to, how to gain those seats, how to get a seat at that table? Um, you know, I've, speaking from my own, from my own experience, um, I wanted to build a career of being involved in the conservation world um, from quite an early age. Uh, so I pursue that through, the, through um, education on marine biology and then to environmental management um, and to understand that getting that first job in conservation organization is incredibly difficult. Um, if there's advice that I could share to the younger version of me that could apply to other women who wanted to be in conservation is to build, um, to get to know people, to essentially build a network and, and be curious, um, take chances, uh, intern in, in places that just spark your curiosity that may or may not work for you. Um, try it out and and get in touch um, with people who might already be in the space. Um, I also wish that the younger version of me would have more guts and um, in reaching out to a conservation organization even after I get rejected. I remember after I graduated from my bachelor in marine biology, I walked up into this large NGO, one of the most famous, because I don't know that many back then. Um, and I bring my CV and my scroll and I told them I want to apply uh, for an internship or a job with them, anything that they can give. And I got thrown out instantly because they thought like, what are you kidding? You're a fresh graduate, you have no experience, you know nothing. Uh, but that taught me that sometimes organizations like ours need to take chances on fresh graduate because so much uh, fresh grad could bring a fresh perspective as well as um, a new way of thinking for our organization. Um, for women who are just starting in conservation and asking on how you could get that seat, I think to stop seeing other women as a competition, um, to see ourselves more more as the band of sisters uh, that we need to work together to achieve our common goals, to, to know and to understand why you want to do this. And a lot of, a lot of work uh, that I do at the beginning is volunteer work. And I know that not everyone could afford to be a volunteer, um, but to have that uh, courage to have the conversation on how much you are able to take on 
before you really have to have a discussion on um, actual paid work. Mm, beautiful. And I think also having that passion as well in this space is so important because at Orangutan Alliance anyway, we hire volunteers and staff based on how passionate they are and sometimes over experience because you can learn so much in the field that you're working in if you can see that passion in someone you know that they're going to be beneficial um, to your organization and they're going to continue their hard work in this space as well and I think we definitely need that. Um, for our last question, which we always ask um, our podcasters, uh, what do you think that we can learn from animals? Oh, wow. Um, I think there's so much we could learn from animals. <laughs> um, you know, someone once asked me which year I was born in, and then I told them, and then they looked at me and they say, oh, so you're a tiger, um, based on a Chinese <laughs> calendar. And that it dawned on me sort of like, oh yeah, I, I am a tiger, I'm a solitary, I'm solitary, I am this, I am that. And we, we try to fit our character, our persona into the animal that, that we like. But one thing that fascinated me about uh, the animal world is their ability to adapt and to not destroy. Uh, we see different animals in the landscape, like the Loisar ecosystem. We see elephant and their family of matriarch. Um, we see orangutan and their ability to roam past landscape uh, through the canopy and their solitary and their ability to learn and their similarities um, to us. Uh, we see tiger and rhino each with their own uh, characteristics. I think to see the animal diversity and to accept that diversity as um, something that mirror our own uh, diversity as well in the human world. Sometimes when we see each other, we tend to see more the difference that we have than the similarities that we have. Even if those differences are based on either skin color, religion, but also on political stance and ideology. Sometimes we think uh, we can't build alliances with people that are different from us. But when we look at nature, when we look at animals, uh, those diversity become very important as we fit into uh, different roles that we play in the ecosystems. If my answer makes sense. <laughs> yes, it definitely does. <laughs> and I was just reading um, about you online and... I really liked one of your posts that said, this is my superpower being agile and adaptable, which you just summed up with the tiger as well. So I thought that was really beautiful. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then feel free to subscribe and we will see you in the next one.